0: Do, 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 Sopranos, daring divas on a mission to uncover opera. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Operation Opera. We had a lovely chat with composer and conductor Russell Steinberg about the Zoom orchestra experience and what music can mean in the early years of our lives. Enjoy. Welcome, Russell Steinberg, to Operation Opera. It is a
1: pleasure to be here, Rachel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Russell and I met years ago. I was thinking about this. I think we met in like 2008, maybe? It was at a conference in Century City. We were both attending a lecture and we began chatting. And I just, I was like, oh, we're going to be friends. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then from there, I've attended, you know, different classes that you've given. Um, I think one on Schubert and then another, um, I, I don't know, on Mahler, I can't remember. But anyway, lots of awesome instruction. And I'm just really glad that you can join
1: us. Okay. So it's a pleasure to be here, Rachel. And I think that's so typical of the random, circuitous way okay. lives work when you're involved in classical music. Because, you know, we're, we're, we're these few numbers dispersed around the world, and then we congregate in these strange places and ways. But because there's so few of us, the, the, the possibilities for continual intersection, they're <laughs> just abundant if you take advantage of it, right?
0: Absolutely, I definitely feel that way, especially when I'm in in New York, because yes. even though it's this huge city, you know, you're gonna run into somebody that you know if you're in Lincoln Center. You oh, just are.
1: <laughs> vertical compression, yeah, which is different. I, I don't. I, I imagine for you where you are now, it's much more dispersed. But even in Los Angeles, where I am, it's it's just such a big pancake. Of a city, you rarely bump into people by accident. You have to really intend it, and that's you're right. Boston, New York, and I imagine Chicago—it happens accidentally. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Daniel agrees. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it's interesting. We, you know, I, I had even forgotten how we had met originally, but but the way that it has grown, you know, and the and and get, getting to know each other's work and each other's arcs—it's just been so delightful. And the irony of the pandemic is that it brought us. Uh, closer together
0: that's true you <laughs> we're, we're farther apart than ever <laughs> right like geographically, geographically
1: apart than ever yeah yeah that's been the quant that's been the fantastical paradox of the time we're living in and i okay. think everyone is aware of that deep in their bones
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you know with the isolation and the reaching out at the same at the same time
0: yeah absolutely so um Will you tell us, Russell, a little bit about your story, like wh- about your journey with music and composition teaching, all of, all of these sorts of things that are sort of make up what you what you do and what what you love to do?
1: Yeah, I, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit of that. I when when you hear people talk about their their arc, at least in our world of classical music or contemporary music, I'm always taken by how different it is from what we expect. And I think it's because we at least I remember growing up with superhero models. You know, I grew up with the heroes, uh, classical heroes of Andre Segovia the guitarist and Arthur Rubinstein the pianist, Dietrich Fischer Discau, <laughs> uh, you know, Baritone, and and you just kind of assume, you, you you know, they they had they had a little bit of jolt at the beginning and then like everything they were just world famous and they just, their career just kind of continued from one amazing thing to another. And I think that was the, that's the arc we all kind of expect when we go into classical music and-
0: Absolutely, this is what people do, right? You go and then you train and then you become a superstar because mm-hmm. you know, you've got this talent.
1: <laughs> yes, and, and 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 the world opens up because you've spent eight hours a day for how many years, you know, and in priestly or priest, priestessly sacrifice and, and yeah, yeah and and then you just go from one delightful tour to another and Facebook is a terrible promoter of this uh, it's a conspiracy I guess of this <laughs> mythology uh, you know where you, you just read people just going on from one unbelievable you know festival triumph to another and, and the reality of course is much different you know that you discovered that uh, that arc even for those people who are superstars is actually much uh, much more circuitous than they, they let on. It's a combination of, of accidents, hard work, and, and, and really taking advantage of rare, rare opportunities. And, and most of them say, "Oh, I'm just so lucky, you know, and, but of course there's so much more to it. But I, I think what I uh, and we, you and I have talked about this, what I think so interesting is that uh, it's actually more interesting the way that you, you have to continue. Because if you, if you are lucky enough to reach a middle age and you're still doing music, still especially doing classical music especially, that, that means you've, you've made a lot of choices to continue and you've had to figure out things that you never learned in school uh, because they, they had no intention of teaching it to you because they probably didn't know how. Uh, and, and so I think that's, you know, that's kind of been my life. I grew up with that mythology. Uh, you know, I was going to be a great composer, and I was going to just go from commission to commission, and uh, it, it was going to be like, that. and I, I certainly have found people that have seemed to do that. You know, they're, they're just a handful, but they have done that. But for most of us, we learned that you have to do very many different things. So I started that way traditionally. I did not have a yo-yo ma type of talent, or uh, in my field, I didn't have a Thomas Otis talent. I do remember in Boston, by the way, uh, Thomas Ottis, who who is, you know, certainly, I, I think, most people know him for, uh, your listeners know him for his operas now. They're just kind of world famous. But he, I remember reading an article of him when he was like 12 years old in England where he was just proclaimed to be the next Mozart. And, you know, they talked about his just prodigious, unbelievable ability to hear multiple lines in his head and, and all of this stuff. And so I didn't have that kind of an arc <laughs> in that way. And many people who have that kind of arc never go on to the career that Thomas Otis uh, had anyway. But I, I, I fell in love with uh, Segovia's guitar and Rubinstein's piano. When I was 10 years old, I wrote my first pieces and uh, realized I just something, my whole body quivered when I wrote, and I realized this is what I was meant to do. And, and, and so I was very lucky that I had a direction early on. It, that direction, especially with singers, oftentimes happens much later, of course. Uh, as their identity and their voice is always is changing or sometimes they, they go into so many other professions first. So I knew I wanted to do that, and that and that I was a little different. And that happened when I was like 10 years old, and that set me apart. So I just knew that's what I was going to do, and so I became very headstrong. And when my piano teacher said, you have to quit everything and just do piano, I said, no way. He would get on the phone with my mother and say, "You cannot let him do this. He will destroy his career." And and he was right. If I was going to be a concert pianist, I would. You know, that got in the way of it. And that and I knew what I what I wanted to do. And then my guitar teacher actually had more talent in classical guitar, and he said the same thing. And so they were both consigning me to the oblivion of you know of amateurism. And I continued with both those things because I knew this is what I, I needed to learn these instruments to do what I wanted to do. And I uh, uh, to get them more upset, I started taking violin <laughs> to add a third instrument because I figured if I was gonna be able to write symphonic music like Beethoven, I'm gonna need to l- learn how, they, how strings work, so.
0: I heard, I heard this story once, sorry. Um, I yeah, heard a story about, about Brahms, that when he was like six years old, he was listening to something and he, wanted to compose and he was just bereft because he was trying to figure out how to develop a system of notation and then his I think his father or someone said oh it already exists and like apparently the relief that he (laughs) experienced like just knowing that was like oh good you know like I don't know I don't have to be responsible for the wheel, you know, um, so. Rachel, that's
1: the most amazing anecdote. And I've never heard that one. I love yeah,
0: that one. Yeah. It's a, it's a, um, yeah, it was really beautiful, a really beautiful um, biography, but uh, yeah. on him, but I, I, I just remember that and thinking like, it is interesting when you're young mm. to have a very clear direction, mm in your own mind because so many other people won't necessarily understand or be able to accept that. Yes. Especially especially if they feel like they know what's best for you, like a teacher or, or a parent. Absolutely, because
1: a dedicated teacher um, they, they, they have a whole program. <laughs> you know, you can hear this when you listen to Simone Biles talk about the Olympics and with these coaches and that you've got to fit into a particular uh, regimen in a particular way. And, and one of the things I thought so fascinating about um, her 60 Minutes interview was, you know, she said one of the strict ideas these coaches had for the gymnasts was you're not supposed to enjoy it. You know, there's no enjoyment. This is not about any kind of enjoyment. This is all just hard work. And she was having fun doing that (laughs) she insisted that that was an essential ingredient that the joy was an essential ingredient to what she was doing and that was apparently a major uh resistance she had to fight against so i i think that's an interesting point you bring up Mm.
0: cool so sorry to interrupt but go on from where yeah okay
1: more interesting I'm going to have to think about this Brahms. actor yeah, the idea that, that he was so relieved that he, he could actually write the music without having to to spend his life inventing a system yes. to do it. it. It's so that's of course so much on my mind now because, as you know, I'm doing a, a course now on twentieth-century string quartet where where so much of twentieth-century composition has been precisely about first the obligation of creating a whole original sound world before you even write the music for that sound world and and uh, you know I'm thinking of your Brahms anecdote that you know he kind of as a six-year-old he already had (laughs) he already had a pretension about this about this (laughs) what was going to happen in another hundred years it's just an amazing Uh, (laughs) amazing idea to put those two together yeah so for me I I, uh, uh, you know I studied very hard I was you know as a a teenager I was doing three instruments and studying composition and I had a wonderful composition teacher who uh, was a bohemian and he, he, was, he had a very eclectic life teaching piano uh, in, basically out of the back of his VW Bug he would load this VW Bug with tons of books and tons of records at the time with a portable record player and he would drive all over Los Angeles giving lessons to to people and taking all this stuff out going into their homes and then you know giving them one or two hour lessons. He would give me 3 and 4 hour lessons because I was his only composition student, real serious one. And so he felt I needed to learn everything. So we didn't learn much composition, but we learned a lot of music history. <laughs> and and we learned a lot of his music. <laughs> and it was it was we became dear friends and that, that was very important because it, he really imparted a, a, such so much of the joy of, of, of composition and music before I went to academia and learned, you know, the rigor, and and had to deal with the fact that the music I loved at that time, you know, I've talked about this. I was such a romantic, loving Brahms, Rachmaninoff, you know, Chopin, and of course all the classical composers. And then um, getting to uh, college and realizing that that, that in, in composition that was a very tiny part of the. you know, on the radar, you know, that everything was really post-Shermberg and so I I had a very hard time adapting to that and uh, that was was a big part of my struggle and I did, you know, I became a very good student. I went from UCLA to New England Conservatory in Boston and I studied with one of the best atonal composers uh, out there, Arthur Berger who um, was a, someone who along with Milton Babbitt really kind of perfected the balancing of, of 12 tones that they are balanced so perfectly at every moment that you never, there's never a sense of a key. It was, I almost called it like negative music because negative harmony because you're, it was so, every pitch was so carefully chosen to make sure that at no point would anything could ever imply, uh, you know, any kind of chord. Like for instance, if you had, uh, uh, if you know, like this would be a big problem if you had even though that's a dissonant sound, to him that's no good because it's clearly B-flat major. So you have to make sure that every pitch could always deny and that's hard work. And what was so interesting about the rigor is that it, every pitch had to have a reason for its existence. And so I ended up spending two years in in Boston studying this system of his, and and I got fairly good at it. And it was it, we got very sensitive. And then after I wrote several pieces, and and then I felt that there was nothing in it for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I I told him I I just felt I needed to write tonal music again. And he 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 sat me down with his with his uh, pipe. He would always smoke a pipe and puff on it, you know, very nervously when he saw I was doing this. He says, you'll ru- ruin your life. Same thing I heard from my piano and guitar teacher, if, if you write this way. And uh, as ashes were spilling over the keys, and he was telling, and he actually said- <laughs> And to you're me,
0: like, you, actually, I'm not yeah. the one smoking, so- <laughs>
1: I did you know rachel i didn't have the i didn't have the ability to say that i wish i did that would have been so great i could have dispelled the whole thing with laughter but i wasn't mature enough and so i just said i feel i need to go this way and he said if you do that don't come back here and that was the last we ever spoke uh and i continued to write tone music i was accepted to harvard university and i studied with leon Kirshner, who who heard Things beyond that, to him, the system was not important. He studied with Schoenberg, and he 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 told us all the time that Schoenberg refused to teach the twelve-tone method. He said that was personal. He said, you know, so when you went to study with Schoenberg, you studied Schubert, Mozart, (laughs) you know, Beethoven. You know, in other words, it was all about structure and process. And he felt Schoenberg felt that you could see it through their genius the clearest. And so, so that's what so. When I studied with Leon Kirshner, uh, he 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 taught that way, and so I, I I highly resonated to that to that way of teaching, and and I I studied with him. I became a very uh, close. I was his last student basically at Harvard University before he retired, and I I, I studied very carefully with him. He became like my, my master mentor as I tried to work out how to bring my romantic tonal sensibility into into our present life, which means really becoming aware of everything that's, be, that's happening in art and music and poetry, you know, now, and, and finding a way that's consonant with what I wanted to do. When, when, um, uh, Lisa and, uh, Rachel, when, when we first talked about my doing this, I, I had a, uh, I just read this wonderful blog I shared with you by Heather Cox Richardson, who is a, uh, a history professor at Boston College, and she's been very politi- politically motivated since the um, uh, Trump presidency. And she started she started doing a daily blog called "Letters from an American," in which she just wanted it to be like a time capsule of her reactions as as a Civil War historian to everything that was going on in America. And she told us uh, the day that you know, you know that you um, you both were asking me about uh, d- being on your podcast, uh, she had this touching story about Frederick Douglass, uh, a story that I'd never heard before, uh, kind of like your story of Brahms <laughs> that I never heard before, in the sense that it was about him in his younger days, before his his super famous days as, the, you know, one of the greatest civil black, black civil rights leaders, and he uh, you know, but, but even before that, he had been, you know, he was a slave, been born a slave, and Heather Cox Richardson talked about the decision he made to become a free man and how terrifying that was. He, and so she talked about that courage he had to step on the train, and, and she says that when she's asked to speak to graduating classes. That's the one piece of advice she always has for them. You know, have the courage to step on the train. You know, when it comes to the, da- you know, the dangers you face, stick up for your ideals. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot, Rachel, because um, and we, we, we're constantly forced with this choice of whether we're going to follow our truest ideals or whether we're going to go in a different direction or, or make a compromise that, that's safer or easier. And it's not always just a one-time only thing. It, that, that does come oh, to Oh, no. Us.
0: The question of integrity is raised almost on a daily basis. Yeah. With our interactions, you know, with our with our choices that we make. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not perfect.
1: You know, it's one of the things I've, I've learned, you know, and I see that as I've had more experience, you start to see uh, the choices people have made. And, you know, at, at some point you create a map in yourself Uh, for yourself, where you're comfortable going and where you won't go, you know, to be able to live with yourself.
0: Well, and And, this is is one of the things that I think ties back to, you know, talking with young people, especially those who are, you know, in pursuit of, you know, what you talked about initially, the trajectory of a career, right, that we're all like, I'm going to be like Fiji Disco, of course, I'm going to, you know, I mean, for me, I guess, because, you know, a singer, but, uh, you know, that we start in this place, and then we have this kind of, you know, somewhat gradual, but ascent to getting to, you know, where we want to be. Yeah. And that's not um, how it works. Yeah. Right. That a career looks a lot more like a, like a seismograph or something, right? Like where yes. we have, yes. you know, we have ups and downs and we have, it's much more almost, you know, you know, like an electronic current going through you. That's sort of what our experiences are. Mm-hmm. And... And I think that that goes along with, you know, with this question of, you know, moments of integrity, what, what things are we, what are we fighting for? What are we working for? What are, you know, on, on a daily basis? And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't.
1: And don't you feel it in your body after you've gone down a path, whether it, it, it's resonating with what really matters for you or not?
0: Don't you feel, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's in, it's in you, right? Like. You'll start down, and you're like, this, 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 uh, this isn't it. <laughs> yeah. That happened for me. I started a graduate program at a school and I knew the entire time that I was getting ready to go, the whole time, even you know, in submitting things and you know, passing out of certain classes, I was just like, This is not it. This is not it. Yeah. But I needed to do something. And so, you know, I went forward and then eventually, you know didn't finish that degree there and uh but it was and it was a whole thing but um but sometimes you have to go through a whole thing
1: i know? love the seismograph image because i think that's really true I, I'm, the image i always have is the way i learned to sail i, I was learning to sail in boss i knew nothing about it and i just couldn't understand get really I wet <laughs> yeah why can't you just go from one side to here to get there it doesn't work that way you've got to
0: tack and jive and do you know you to,
1: it's the only way you can get to where you want when you sail
0: terrible <laughs> sailor <Because laughs> i it's the same thing i struggle with machines like you know there's no reasoning with the wind yeah that's what i mean it's <laughs> no reasoning you know with a button these sorts of things yeah
1: <laughs> well it doesn't it doesn't go in a straight line that's for sure yeah um, until you have a map you have that map in your, in your soul that that's, that's, that's the natural way it goes, not in a straight line, you know, it's, right. you're fighting it. And, and so I think, you know, in our careers, that was the same way. I, I hit a point where I was, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's funny how constant the thread was. You know, I continued uh, to study with Leon Kirshner when he fell out of favor politically at Harvard and was no longer uh, allowed to teach graduate students. And I, he, was, he, he was so helpful to me, I just couldn't imagine uh, not continuing with him. That was the reason I was in school. And when I spoke to the, uh, the chair of the composition department, he just actually, you know, just baldly said, if you continue to study with him, you will not win a single prize while you're here. I promise you that. And I said, well, you know, I can't, didn't come here to win prizes. You know, I was so ridiculously idealistic. I said, I came here to, uh, to, to learn composition the best I could, and he's really helping me. And so, uh, true to his word, the composition chair made sure I didn't win any, any, any prizes from the department the whole time I was there. And, and it could have, you know, I, I could have had a very different life if I had not stepped on the train, you know. And, it, it, you know, I don't know, I just don't, I know internally I never would have been satisfied, but it would have been, you know, it would have led to, to other things. And so by not stepping on that train, it, I certainly came, you know, into myself. Uh, and and I, you know, I continued that way. So just to, to finish my, my circuit, I, I got a PhD from Harvard, and in record time, I, I, I just found it was, I just, loved, I just loved college, I just loved studying, I was, you know, I think some of us just discover we're perpetual students, and that turned into discovering I'm a teacher, because I found uh, if, you, if you really love to be a student, you're, you're a very good teacher because you don't sit there arrogantly teaching people you you think of teaching as your chance to be the best student in the class and to help everyone else to to become the best students in the class and so I discovered as a TA there that was really uh, something different I never imagined being a teacher never wanted to be a teacher and I came back to uh, to Los Angeles and I started teaching at UCLA and uh, while that lasted, that that was very very good. I also found I uh, got very interested in in the computer technology, and I did a, uh, I did some CD-ROMs that won some awards, and I thought that was going to be uh, my ticket to uh, to financial bliss, and. And then um, that, the internet came along, and that was the end of that, that, whole, that whole world. And I was working very hard as a film composer, and I did a lot of short films and some feature films, but uh, I saw more and more of my time in music getting locked up in films that went to festivals that really weren't, getting major distribution, and I started to get a very uh, bad feeling that I was getting all this music locked up. Because when you do film music, you don't own the, your music, you don't, you, know, the, you don't have the rights to it in most cases, nor do you make the artistic decisions, some of the most important artistic decisions on it. And, um, and so as difficult as that was, I finally made the decision, no, just to go with concert music. I had an opportunity. And I I I went through a lot of employment and uh, just you know anguish about things, uh, and then I uh, you know just I discovered that it's just you can cut up that pizza in as many slices as you want. And then just to make to shorten this up, I became a music director, and that led me to uh, teaching in other other ways. I. I started giving pre-concert talks about Los Angeles Philharmonic I was very good at getting people excited about it and I, I found that excited me and then continued to uh, get performances of my music small per, small things but all over the world you know I would find small pockets of people that were interested and I decided that was actually very satisfying because I get to play my you know I got to sculpt my music to the best I could I'm a very uh, harsh critic on myself tough reviser but then when I have it I, it feels like it's finished and and good and so I've had this wonderful opportunity to work with some of the best players in the world and and collaborate in a way that at least is meaningful for me Uh, I now I'm up to you know I've started giving my works opus numbers I'm up to opus 87 now and uh, you know and I found that that for me is is, is a very meaningful meaningful life whether I achieve you know fame or not it really isn't important anymore it's more important that I really feel I'm taking everything inside of me and sharing it with people and also living up to the potential I have. You know, I I can't be a Thomas Otis, but I sure can be the best Russell Steinberg if I decide not to quit on it.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for your kids during this pandemic being able to continue to play because you found a way for that to work? What what's, What has that process been like?
1: that was the pandemic has been uh, an unprecedented event in all of our lives you know right. I don't think any of us were even my oldest students were not uh alive well I guess one was alive for the Spanish flu <laughs> I have one that one and three, three old friend but otherwise none of us were and uh it um I, I guess the first thing I thought about was how people are so hun- we're becoming so hungry for connection And so that's one reason I started giving these Zoom, weekly Zoom sessions for for people, so that we could get together and talk about classical music. For the orchestra, uh, we started like every other orchestra just being on Zoom. And uh, it was, I think we, we, you know, I was able to give a lot of high quality Zoom classes, but I found the interaction was pretty um, unsatisfactory. Every youth orchestra and even every major orchestra uh, I saw around the country were doing these, things, these virtual performances where everyone would record their part individually. And then you know, you know, an editor would spend ridiculous hours mixing these things together and then presenting these videos. And you know, we were all besieged with these videos you know, of, of these virtual performances, which were, uh, were... Some of them had great production value. Some of them had some very good heartfelt interviews along with them, but musically, they were less than optimal, and we did several of those too, and I started to realize how important it you know, was for us to get, be together, and I guess because I have a lot of knowledge about chamber music and a love for chamber music, I realized I, if we retooled the organization, we could actually divide this orchestra of 120 kids into different chamber groups that could actually play outside because we're so blessed to live here in la where the weather is mostly good
0: it only rains like you know four days a
1: year well with climate change (laughs) it hardly even rains that yeah it's it's uh yeah we we had one day that we thought it was going to rain out but but actually the biggest problem we had was wind and fire uh but none of that shut us down uh, for long. And so so then it was a question of just taking this organization that's built to do an orchestra, and how do you retool it now to to do chamber music? It seems like it would be simple. It is not. Because, for instance, we had to find 12 Um, parents who had homes geographically favorable for everyone to go to. And then it took military logistics to figure out, okay, if you take 120 and you just, some of them are going to be duos, some are going to be trios, some are going to be quartets. How do you divide them into groups? And then if they're siblings, you have to make sure that they're going to the same house you know you know and you have to make sure the levels match so advanced people are playing with advanced people intermediate with intermediate you know the levels are good some people have a lot of experience with chamber music some people have very little or no most of them had none and and then you have to hire extra coaches so i'm just trying to point out it was it was not an easy thing and that i think is the reason as far as i know we're the only youth orchestra at least on the west coast that stayed open during the pandemic Because it took a lot. Plus, you had to deal with all the issues of um, liability. Most boards didn't want to take that chance. And uh, I went with science. (laughs) That was my thing. I went with science. And so, you know, from talking to virologists, you know, people who knew better, it became clearer and clearer that this was an airborne disease that um, outside was not a problem as long as you weren't close together in groups, so I had all the musicians wearing masks except for the wind players, the wind, so the peop, people in masks had to be at least six feet apart and outdoors, and the, the wind players had to be 10 to 20 feet apart, so, so they, were, they were much farther apart, and so I, I felt in my heart there was no chance any, that any infection could occur. Oh, and the other thing is we only eliminated, uh, there were no groups more than five students at a time with a coach so in these backyards. So I was absolutely convinced that we had taken all the necessary precautions, so there was no chance of, of infection. Uh, and so that gave me the confidence to just kind of bully. The, I didn't even ask that. I just said, we're going to do this. And then I had an executive director who went with us, and then we found someone to help us organize uh, chamber groups, set up this military grid, and hired more coaches. And we ended up having this amazing experience where students well, I mean- said, this was the... Only thing we did together with other kids, with other friends this whole year.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what so I was, that was going to be my follow-up question is like, what yeah. I imagine that that has been a huge thing for those kids, especially you know those who have no chamber experience, which is most people's. Most people in orchestras like you join an orchestra because you're like, I don't want to blend in, you know, <laughs> and you know having that time where it's like, oh, I am the only one playing this part. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a different experience. Um, what, uh, were you able to talk to some of those students and talk to them about, like, how they, so you said it was the only thing that they did together and they seemed grateful? Oh, they, they,
1: they, they had a lot of interesting responses. Mm-hmm. A lot of, inter- I mean, I learned quite a bit. Uh, first of all, it was a growing process. The, the first semester was pretty, pretty rough for them. Uh, You know, there are all kinds of things they had to deal with. Like you said, you can't hide behind your part. Everything you do is heard, and you have to be all, you know, you have to find a way to get along with all the other people. And there there, there was all kinds of interesting issues that come up with chamber music. But what was amazing was by the second semester, they were getting the hang of it. And when, by the time of the second semester, they were, I mean, God, their observations were so interesting. They say, I'm really learning now how to play together with other people, you know, because, I, you know, they're forced to, you know, they really can, to get the cue. So another person said, I'm really learning how to lead, how to indicate so that people can follow me. Uh, other people said, I'm really learning how you have to change whether you're playing loud or soft, you know, how important that is. You know, you have to know whether you're on the top or the bottom of the part. So they were getting, you know, they started to have these wonderful uh, epiphanies that they just weren't getting even as easily in the orchestra. And I was very excited. And some of them discovered that they like chamber music better. I may lose some of them because they think they like chamber music better. But for the most part, I think they just <laughs> talked about the importance of having some time to be with other people live to play. So they would they would rehearse for 90 minutes and then they would leave and another group would come in. We had three groups in each house and they would do this every Sunday. And then we recorded them at the end. And then we did the concert on Zoom and you know so they could see it, it was a marathon concert it was four hours long
0: <laughs> yeah amazing. i tuned in for part of it i'm like oh man it's still going yeah, all I mean, right I know.
1: <laughs> I know but it was important for them to see Absolutely. what a magnificent thing they had done and how much they had had um improved also also i think uh, you know the se- I had the seniors um all talk about their experience you know the the, the students who were seniors, I, they got so gypped, right, with the pandemic. You know, your senior year is your year of culmination in high school. You're a big person on campus. You know, there's parties. There, there, there's a glowy feeling to it, hopefully. You finished 11th grade with all the insane, uh, you know, being, trying to hold, hold on to those AP courses if you're college prep. And, and uh, you know, there, there's a chance to kind of feel you've, you know, you've, you know, you've reached something. And, and they got cheated out of that culmination this year so it was important i th- you know I, I think in one small way we were able to, to to help with that with the orchestra and so and we're going to carnegie hall i'm taking them to carnegie hall next june so i'm hoping some of the ones who couldn't go who uh, were seniors will be able to join us for that that's
0: beautiful i just think that's absolutely beautiful i think it's a wonderful thing for kids to be able to get together and learn how to really listen because i guess when you're in an orchestra at least for me, and maybe I don't know if you feel this way, but in an orchestra, yeah. when I played, what did you cello, play orchestra, Rachel. I played a cello. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, wonderful. Um, I was never first chair. Never really wanted to be. No, I, I, I was just interested. And orchestra was necessary for me because it was the way that I got through high school. Mm-hmm. Because it was the only outlet that was musical. These were my people. Uh huh. Your um, people. Your community. Yeah in my community yeah and and I did a chamber group one year and Uh it was so much fun and it was also like it was really hard work but it was it was so great because you get to talk to each other because you know the instrument gets to talk a little bit more but also you um you have to feel one another more and I think in an orchestral setting it's the conductor's job to feel everyone individually and every sort of like yes. color. Um, and, and so I think a conductor will feel that sense of community sometimes even more so than, than the instrumentalists because you have to be so focused just on your part rather than like how that part fits in. You have to trust that how that part fits in is going that's to be so handled sure. by the conductor, right? Yes, that's true. So. In fact,
1: I, I, I've often felt it radiates outward you know, like my sense of the cohesion is something that people in the front stands feel. But as you go back to the stands, I feel it's just like with an audience. To be honest, I feel the closest connection when I perform with the people in the front, and 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 it it diminishes that energy. It's hard, you know. Great performer, I, you know, we we've all experienced c- touches someone sitting in the very back of an audience. You know, have their, their energy is that powerful. But I feel there's a diminishing quality to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting idea but it's it's uh, I think there's something in that. So you're right by the students being in a chamber group, you know, they are the focal point of the energy and as you pointed out so well, they suddenly are responsible for their own interpretation. They have to make decisions how fast are we going to take this? How are we going to phrase this? Are you doing, how are you bowing this and you know whatever. And 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 those are that empowerment is is really huge
0: especially huge. at this age, right? Yeah. when you're a teenager and you've been told what to do your entire life (laughs) right and like and now you're getting ready to be an adult and you know someone still is telling you like have you brushed your teeth you know do you know whatever like and now you get to do something and create a thing and what that can feel like
1: yeah no it's very true Uh, now you're terrifying me because i've realized i've turned all these people into conductors how am i going to conduct them now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're going to be telling me no. We think it should go this way. Oh, my God. If you, if it's if such it trouble. There here. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, uh, it, it, is a, it is a beautiful thing. One of the other things I did with the orchestras when we did have Zoom sessions, I brought in alums, people who had graduated, to talk to them and about different topics, like what's the real skinny in college? You know, what do you want to spend your time doing as opposed to what people tell you to do? And so, I mean, they really talked about it. They said, you know, they just said office hours are not an option. You know, they said, you know, th- there's nothing more important than the professors you want. You go to every office hour, whether you have something to say or not. You know, they, they were just giving them all kinds of ideas of where, where you want to put your energy and, and, and things that may not be as important. They talked about the importance of finding ways of taking classes outside your major that that are really interesting. You know, just all kinds of things about enriching you and what networking really was like. And then they gave tips for sight reading and tips for how to handle performance nerves because of course they, you know, they're much more they're dealing with this on a much more advanced level. And my my God, I, I didn't realize how um, you know how in tune uh, people undergraduates and graduate students now are on those topics. I mean, they really understand the science uh, of performance uh, pressure and anxiety. It's really kind of fantastic.
0: I feel like so many young people have had to deal with anxiety in a more intense way because of the influence of social media and the lack of personal connection. Um, You know, it, it, it has increased you know, comparison, it has increased, um, you know, you know, just feelings of inadequacy, all of that stuff. And so to have experiences where they're being truly mentored, and given tools to navigate those minefields of experience. I mean, that's huge. It's huge. I'm a huge fan of it. <laughs> no, the,
1: the, your, your, that, and, and that part, the fact that that's being addressed, just like You know, actual career guidance is being addressed is so important, right, in our field, which really wasn't, uh, you know, it was given lip service, but now people are really, you know, I I used to get so upset when I'd hear about these courses teaching you how to be an entrepreneur, because Mm -hmm. anyone who studies sales and entrepreneurship knows that 99% of entrepreneurs fail completely. You know, and so yeah. I, I I just don't like this idea that the paradigm is It's like that's as bad as the conservatory paradigm built to failure for just point one percent, a tenth of a percent. You know, I the, the, there there are all kinds of other paradigms that that, that really don't have uh, don't have a losing equation. And one of them is just the fact that you know reaching out like to you and you know uh, I wanted to share some of my vocal music. You know, the the vocal music I, I you know I wrote. Came about through all very specific collaborations with singers, you know that I that I met kind of outside the no, you know normal range of quote unquote networking, and 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 I, it was just because I was open to that to the these possibilities and then just let them sing if you will that allowed me to to uh, to, to go in those directions. So I was going to talk to you since you guys, Please. this is an opera thing. I wanted to talk absolutely.
0: A little bit let us talk about the voice.
1: Yeah, because <laughs> I'm not a singer, but I, I my first exposure to great singing was in a class I took at UCLA as an undergraduate that was not in my major. It was art song
0: accompaniment,
1: and I thought that would be really interesting, and, and the, it
0: is its own beast. It is, it is its own beast,
1: and I was lucky to have a teacher there, James Lowe, who was an accompanist both at USC and UCLA, who it was his life passion, and He's the one who taught me to circle around, to love Brahms, <laughs> through Brahms as a leader. And, and taught me, like, Es hing der Reif, you know, and some of these other great art songs of Brahms. You know, just uh, a whole heart of Brahms that, you know, we don't even hear in his instrumental music. And I, uh, you know, he, to watch him coach singers from the piano and then try to get us to do the same, to the same thing, that, that was just invaluable. And I fell in love with the voice from that class. And wanted to write art song for that time. And I remember I was taking a class in poetry at the time, and so um, I would, I, you know, what I did for my final in both classes was I set uh, four of my favorite poems from the poetry class uh, for a soprano in our class, and that's how I that was that was kind of my first foray. Oh, cool! Music. Yeah, and uh, that that was, uh, you know, it, it's all, writing, writing. I find writing for the voice always. Uh, a fascinating challenge and struggle, but I love the collaborate collaboration of it. So I was going to play you. You know, my recent, most recent collaboration has been with this fabulous Grammy Award-winning singer Hila Plitman. Yeah. And Hila is just a, just a force uh, of her own. Uh, just a force of beauty and radiance. I, I was first exposed to her voice as, as a, a Pre-concert lecture at the LA Philharmonic, where she sang uh, Essa Pekka's uh, Wings on Wing, uh, Wing on Wing. His his uh, wonderful orchestra piece that has two sopranos at opposite ends of the uh, auditorium, and they would have to they would have to um, stand in the audience, you know. And and I, I love this role that she had. Be she'd be right next to us. It happened to be right near where I was sitting, and she would uh, you know, and yet be completely in her own space. I was so amazed how she created her own space. To, to, to have this role, even though she was literally sit, you know, standing just right next to us. I, I was just, and then she was so focused on creating this beautiful sound in Disney Hall. And so I was enamored of her voice from that time uh, on and, and her high singing. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, she specializes in this super high tessitura, but I said, I have this feeling that her voice is even more beautiful lower down. And so I, I wanted, I was already thinking that way. And so I met her at a party uh, for uh, the Here Now Music Festival. Uh, and, and we were just talking at a party. I don't think she even knew me, but I, you know, I had mentioned this experience I had hearing her at the LA Phil, and she just said, Why don't you write me a piece? And I'm sure she said that, she says that to composers regularly. She was married to Eric Whitaker for a long time, so I mean, she, she, you know, she's very comfortable with, with composers. So I took her up on it. And I, it, took me, it took me a while to find, I started, I had been reading James Joyce's chamber music, these early poems mm-hmm. written by James Joyce that, that, not like Finnegan's Wake, where you need a skeleton key to understand it. They're just beautiful, simple poems about love and, and uh, some things he wrote when he was very young. And mm-hmm. I, wanted, I, I set one of those, those poems and uh, I said, would you come over and let me just kind of read through it with you? And she did, and uh, she just immediately liked it. And her first thing, she says, more, write more. <laughs> so She's like, I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do to write more. She says, write more. So I, I, I started to play around. I realized that there were six of these songs that would make a wonderful song cycle. Now, these so- these, this poetry has been set by many other, uh, many other composers, but, you know, it spoke to me in my own way. And what I did with it was I, I had, I'm, I have a particular Americana style, I guess, that's been very influenced by Ives and Copeland in my writing, and I brought that into it, even though these are English songs and poetry, I gave it this Americana uh, quality, and so I was going to share with you this, uh, this one uh, song, that, the one she likes of the set, her favorite one, it's called Only, Oh Lonely Watcher of the Skies. I called the cycle Lights of Amethyst because that came from another poem. And I just love I love the color, the, the imagery of the color. And I tried to find I tried to find amethyst in the piano. <laughs> and I remember I came up with this, this quality. And I decided that was amethyst. This kind of kind of quasi-B major sound. And that became a, 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 a a persistent motive in the piece. And um, so let me just read the poem and then you can play it. Um, it's called "O Lonely Watcher of the Skies. O Lonely Watcher of the Skies, at that hour when all things have repose. O Lonely Watcher of the Skies, do you hear the night wind and the sighs of harps playing unto love to unclose the pale gates of sunrise? When all things repose, do you alone awake to hear the sweet harps play to love before him on his way and the night wind answering in antiphon till night is overgone? Play on, invisible harps, unto love, whose way in heaven is aglow and at that hour when soft lights come and go, soft sweet music in the air above and in the earth below. You can see why he called it chamber music <laughs> it's it's just it, it it really has music all of its own and so when you have to write a uh, when you set a poem that beautiful it's difficult because you have to break the poem in a certain way to create your own music over it and i i did that with this and made a very dreamy uh piece of it and Hila just just i think she just she just understood it and uh, we 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 played a lot with it she we adjusted tempi. she had all kinds of powerful suggestions that I think made the song better. So, we well, want to play a little bit sure. of that. It's it's about 5 minutes or 5 6 minutes. Beautiful. Thank you. Mm. She just has such a, she, she just got the whole meditation and, <laughs> and uh, she just carries you along with it. It's beautiful to hear her.
0: Yeah. Um, and I love the conversation between the piano and the voice. Yeah. Um, and that they're, they feel, Connected, but they also feel like two very distinct voices. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. her vocal line is 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 very different than what is sort of being played um, underneath the support. And mm-hmm. it's really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's the, 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 the,
0: very important.
1: You know, the, not only are they equal partners, but like you said, they they have very different kind of roles. And uh, you know, and, and it's difficult because you know she's a singer with a very uh, you know, her, her, test, her, her harmonic resonance is so high, and yet my piano writing is also high, so there's got to be this dovetailing
0: for uh-huh. that to work. You
1: might notice in this piece, the piano really doesn't go much below middle C. It goes a little bit below, but not much. So they're, 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 that's one of the reasons. You know, I was trying to get of a celestial vision that way. just kind of right? but, but it take, takes, takes a lot of work than dovetailing dynamically yeah and a
0: few of those moments of seeing about stars I was like oh she's the shooting star yeah. like, like it felt mm-hmm. like that like she had that sense of like movement and yeah across the night which I think is pretty cool um you know I I think there is definitely something to be said about being willing to step back from what what people expect of you at any given moment in order to listen to what you need to do, like sort of tying back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, And what you can create as a composer, as an artist, um, gets to actually be unique and gets to be you. You
1: know, what you just said is something, you know, people say it so glibly, you know, be yourself. (laughs) It's not easy, is it? You know, the pressures we're under to conform are, are just you know they're, they're so they're so major that we't don't, don't, we don't see them you know they're invisible in a certain way, and you know it, it takes a lot of meditation and awareness to to start to understand that that difference between you know just as when we were talking about my my students in the orchestra, you know the pressures on them, especially in their teenage years they're, they're not even aware of how much pressure they're under you know, to conform to their peer group, for instance, you know and, and to really and, and to actually come into your own. You know, that is that is not an easy that is not an easy thing. And uh, I think I'm very envious for people who find their voice like quickly and just know that's who they are. You know? Hmm. I was playing you the music of George Crumb yesterday and and you know, here's a composer, his you know, he wrote in a particular way up to in the nineteen late fifties, and then suddenly, boom! He just said it was like a lightning bolt. He just suddenly knew who he was, and from that moment on, he wrote in a in his own very special way, and never, uh, you know, basically just evolved from that one moment. And I was very envious of that kind of that particular kind of epiphany of knowing who you are. Mm. It's a pretty interesting moment. You know, some of us have to work to it. We don't have it as a one thing. We have to carve it out. you know in 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 very messy (laughs) very messy carvings right to get to that like a pumpkin right like a pumpkin rachel exactly (laughs) that's right some people don't know what the pumpkin's gonna look like till they're done
0: that's right right. my pumpkins always look the same like the face that i carve it's like that's that's the face right there you know just sort of a happy dopey grin. i'm like
1: (laughs) well you see (laughs) you know who you are my pumpkins are always a surprise. <laughs> I have no idea what they're going to look, or whether they'll even be face worthy. <laughs> whether the nose will collapse into the mouth. You know, yeah, the, you know, you're, I, I'm just pointing out that you, you know, what you're saying is so true, and it's not. Uh, you know, you can. It, we all talk about, oh yeah, that's a truism, but it's it, it actually there's there's a lot of depth to that and and dissonance as well. Mm-hmm. to understanding what that really means. Absolutely
0: because there are all kinds of social pressures, you know, we talk yeah. about, you know, a lot of this is for for young people and there are so many social pressures to believe and to act and to say um and to exhibit a certain amount of um outrage <laughs> mm-hmm. um or 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 a variety of other feelings um depending on on what is the thing of the moment and Um, and that thing may not have hold any weight, you know, within a couple of months, or it may become standard or whatever. And, Mm. you know, the kind of values and the integrity that we develop, you know, during these informative years are, you know, are sort of what see us through later on and what help us to, to know what, um, what we can contribute. And I don't know. know
1: Just what you say, you're building, you know, we're, you're building (laughs) a by gradually you're building a skill set that's bigger than your practicing skill set and that skill set is the skill set to know when you're when you're doing something up to a level you can be satisfied with Mm. and and that that's so you know brahms to get you know you want to i didn't know the brahms anecdote you told me but my one of my favorite brahms anecdotes not an anecdote this is something he said he said we can't always be original, but we can make sure that our work is unassailable. Mm. And by unassailable, he meant that you do the work in it, so that it has integrity, and it's in his structure, it's being the best it can be in terms of the structural problem it sets out. And he says, in that sense, it's unassailable. And he said, that's, that's, that's a, that's a more worthy goal than trying to be original because it means that you're you're, you're giving it the res- your, your work the respect to to bring it up to a place where it's as finished as you can do it you know and and, and then you take satisfaction in that even if it falls very short of things i felt that with this cycle cycle it was you know I, I i as i've told you i'm a reviser i go through polish after polish after polish but then it eventually gets to a place where that you know it's like a sculpture you say oh that's the shape this is what it is out of that clay and it feels very good yes this you know it could be performed differently here and there but this this has a shape I love and and in this particular song cycle my collaboration with Hilo was so important because the last song uh, of the cycle has a moment you know you know kind of epiphany moment it's, it's a very dramatic song of Joyce's and then you realize he's talking through all this kind of crazy dream stuff, he's talking about a tremendous loss that he's had. And he realized that was actually what was behind all of these poems. But unlike in Dichterliebe, where you know it's about loss from the very beginning, you know, because the, the piano tells you that he lost his love at the very beginning. And this, you don't know it till the very end. And so I have a moment with a very dramatic uh, piece that then just breaks to this you know incredible, again, a kind of celestial adagio. And I thought I had written it just perfectly. And HeLa said, no, it's not right. And she says, mm-hmm. it needs to go twice as slow. <laughs> and that seemed preposterous to me. How could it go twice as slow? And then she demonstrated it. And I go, Oh, my God, that is what I heard. And so she she actually was able to find something that might have taken me a very long time to discover, uh, or not at all. And that, was, and that was a very beautiful moment.
0: Right, the beauty yeah. of collaboration, you know, yeah. when you're with a team that you can trust, and that, you know, you listen to, and, um, and also when you can offer you know something that feels like it is in keeping with the spirit of the peace right yeah. that yeah. you know you talk about like something to be envied to some extent to have an idea and a knowledge of who and what you are and what you have to contribute from a young age but also like yeah. in something like this joy cycle it yeah. is a process of going through it and then discovering, like, oh, that's what this was about, which is so much like life, where mm. you know you may be in a pattern of something that you continue to to visit and revisit and revisit, and then eventually you're like, oh, that's actually about this thing. <laughs> right? And thing you know, Rachel,
1: and- I, I, um, I I know we're interviewing me, but th- this this is something I felt from you when I heard you do your Mahler songs. Mm. I, I felt that you had lived with these songs and you really you really had made some decisions about you know uh, uh, you know you had your own epiphanies with them at least that came off to me in the way I way I heard them that same way and I I just thought they were uh, you can you can hear if that process has gone on because there's an ownership you're not then performing something it's you're sharing something very deep inside you
0: I love that distinction the difference between perform and share Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. When I first, you know, with the, with the very tragic Mahler that I did just briefly um, when I first was looking at it, I just, I just wept when I read the yeah. lyrics, like I just wept mm-hmm. and I couldn't get through it and I couldn't get through it and I couldn't get through it until, until I could get through it, you know? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that I think is, is to live
1: something. Well, so, we heard that when you when you sing and i, I you know one of the problems and as performers is we oftentimes don't have enough time to invest and live with music all, you know all the time you mm-hmm. know? and and it, but it makes a big difference you know there's a big difference in hearing even the best professional wing through something and oh, absolutely. And, and you know and have the kind of and as opposed to the kind of commitment that we're talking so i had the you know i had this real luxury not being a world famous composer, and Gila having some time off, that we really had a lot of time to uh, to think about this, and at least in the gestation of it, and uh, you know, and then like every first performance, we thought, my God, we need to do this again now because we got about 50 percent of what we wanted out of that, and uh, you know, and you hope for that as well.
0: Yeah, of course, definitely. Oh, it's mm-hmm. so
1: great. <laughs> but you know, it, you know, it's it's not a far leap to say you know you've heard this many times that composers view their or writers view their uh their works as children Uh, that analogy actually continues onto several layers i mean it doesn't just work in the surface layer it 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 goes very deep because uh just as you grow up with your children you grow up up through your piece too and uh there's 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 a lot of love and a lot of struggle you know, you just heard me do my, my piano pieces I've been wrestling with for a long time, which I just, I just continually was um, not happy with, continually rejecting them. And, and then they came into their own, and I feel they're, they're done, and they're yes. out
0: in the world. Let us I'm talk about them for a moment. So uh-huh. I want to talk about these for a moment. So yeah. Beach Pebbles. The reason why I want to talk about them is because they're wonderful. And, um, but I can totally understand why it would be a challenge to want to release them because there is a level of vulnerability with these pieces, probably unlike anything else that you have released publicly. Right. Yes. And, and that's always scary because yeah. when, you know, I, again, I, I talk about this all the time, but like, you know when when you have your heart in your hand and you're like, please don't squish it, and you hold it out to someone, and you're like, this is precious. Like I would like to live, <laughs> um, <laughs> right?
1: Um, it's also hard when you've played it for people who you love and respect, and then they they tell you this is this is not very good. Don't you know, right, of
0: course. And that's hard. That's hard. Absolutely, because you know, I mean, some. But again, like I have to say. I think this came out in in class the other day when we were talking about about these pieces. Is that you know they there's a simplicity, but it's lived in, mm. and that and that the choices have been made after many revisions and after yeah. layer after layer, and because of that, it it has a quality of 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 strength and it's not trite,
1: mm-hmm. and so yeah
0: yeah and and I think that 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 is what you kind of hope for when you're creating something one that is really vulnerable but two is um you know does does have an element that that sounds simple even if it's actually (laughs) you're right
1: and and i i had to work through a lot of layers of Uh, Mm -hmm. self-hatred that's that's uh, you talk about vulnerable that's uh i didn't plan on talking about this but but since you brought it up you, you are so intuitive uh about these things i uh, that, that was really difficult because, of course, when people I respect, you know, tell me that this is, you know, too derivative and blah blah blah, it's just not good work. You know, that, that, that reinforces other tapes I heard from my teachers, as I've told, as sure. I have shared with you in this life story, and and uh, and so then you, you know you're you're faced with the kind of existential crisis, like why am I continuing to come back to this, you know, if it's so bad. You know, I must be a bad person, (laughs) I must be a bad composer, all this.
0: You you told that story earlier on about about a teacher of yours who was like, then don't ever come back here, or there's nothing for you, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I had a teacher who, after studying with for two years, I realized that I was becoming, like, my sound was becoming like everyone else's, and I thought, like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I know that feeling. And so I just said, and I was like, I'm sorry, I can't study with you anymore. And her, her response was, what am I going to tell people, Rachel? <laughs> and, and, I, and I remember just saying like, wow. I don't know, what are you going to tell people? <laughs> like, Boy, you have good
1: repose. I wish I, did. I, I, don't have that ability. I love that.
0: Yeah, what are well, you going to tell people? I don't know. What are you going to tell people? I, I have no so idea. Like, Your
1: sense of humor is fantastic. <laughs> I I relate to what you said so deeply because I know the feeling you had, it's like you can't breathe
0: because you start
1: to, you look around, I was finding this in Boston. I was going, Oh my God, I'm starting to sound like all these other composers now, you know, where am I in this? You know, what would I feel like in 20 years to look back at this, that I'm just another.
0: Am I uh, a cliche? Have I become a cliche? Right? Like, we study to, or I think ideally we study to expand and build a foundation for what we are. Yeah. um, So that we're able to interpret what we are in the healthiest way. Like that's Mm -hmm. to me the ideal about studying. And what so often happens is it's somebody else's ideal instead of like, you know what is the classic you know schoenberg taught mozart and he taught schubert why because that's the foundation and then you will have a voice of your own but mm-hmm. he's not going to teach you his voice because it's right. his.
1: he had he had you know he was such a towering intellect and genius he understood that is not things you teach yeah at the same time he was horrible because he always told people not to compose they didn't have the talent <laughs> and in, so it was that was a whole other psychological morass but, but, but
0: oh um, I know and yeah right i mean
1: what you're saying is is perfect. so true and and i think so much of us as being an artist uh, you know in our level of acceptance is you know we, we you know round this off we I started by talking about we, we're, we begin our path with the mythologies of the superheroes that we love you know in our, our mm-hmm. profession and we find that those mythologies are um, kind of false idols for us personally you know and, and, and then we have to and then we have to decide if we're going to continue to climb this mountain we have to find our own you know way of way of doing it and it's it's not the it's messy you know, you know, going up. And then, and then I, I guess that we, we, we have to come to a point saying, well, you know, we have to accept who we are. <laughs> and, you know, if, if we can't even love it, but we, like Brahm said, we have to do the best to say we, we've made this as perfect as we can. And I've, I found, you know, I'm at a place now where I, I feel that very deeply in, in what I do. And, it's, and I found that that, that is, uh, to use the Jewish the Hebrew, that is, that's sufficient.
0: Die, die, Aino, hey, die, <laughs> die hey,
1: no I know yeah. that. You've been at Passover.
0: <laughs> oh, I have many a time.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. I love Pesach. Yeah, I, I've always felt that was kind of a false prayer because the Jews were never were never content with just enough. But it's 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 like
0: an aspiration. One <laughs> of my favorite. One of my favorite stories from a rabbi that I used to sing at at his temple. Yeah. He used to tell the story about, you know, the Jews wandering in the wilderness, and he said, you know of all places the negev like why do we have to be in the, you know like, like for 40 years <laughs> could have been the bronx yeah exactly like why not hawaii like, why would we, you know? i love that yeah yeah, yeah. That's,
1: that's great well so, you know so we all have our negevs and 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 we try to turn them into paradise right yeah, that's right. that's that's what i was doing with that song cycle yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Boy, we covered a lot of uh, really interesting topics.
0: Yeah, this was great. Thank you.